The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today Highlights Podcast number one. This week, we discussed the Grammy Awards, Jimi Hendrix, and the Jazz Museum in Harlem, New York City. This podcast gives you the highlights from all of the podcasts on this network that came out this past week. Let's start with the second podcast that I have ever started on this network after the daily podcasts called Music History Today, the weekly edition, which drops every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. On that podcast, we usually go over the music news of the week, do album reviews, talk about who should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and go over the music charts of the week. This week's topic segment was all about the history of the Song of the Year Grammy. Here's a clip from that podcast. This week, we're going to talk about another of the big four prestigious Grammy Awards, Song of the Year. Like the Record of the Year category, the Song of the Year has normally not been too controversial. Given out as one of the original categories when the Grammys started out in the late 1950s, the vast majority of the songs that have been nominated have gone on to either been considered some of the greatest singles of all time or are still getting played on streaming services and radio stations worldwide. Of the 61 winners of the Song of the Year Grammy, 32 of them also won Record of the Year. Song of the Year is awarded to the songwriters of the song. That's why a lot of the times you'll think that, say, Adele has won the award, but people who you don't recognize will go up on stage with her. As it is, more times than not, the performer of the winning song has also been a part of the writing team. For this podcast's sake, I will mention the performer who performed the song, not all of the songwriters for each song, because sometimes there's literally ten different songwriters. Also, when I mention the year, it's for the year of the music since the award usually gets handed out the year after, and that's usually early in the year. Usually these cases, January or February. For instance, even though the first Grammy was technically handed out in 1959 with Volare, it was given for music that was recorded in 1958. Therefore, I'll say that Volare won in 1958. 
As far as the multiple winners of the award, there have been a few who have won it twice, although no one as of yet is a three-time winner. Performers of the winning song who have won twice include Adele, Henry Mancini, Johnny Mercer, James Horner, Will Jennings, and U2. Also, songs written for... Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Roberta Flack, and Andy Williams have won twice. There have been seven Best New Artist winners who have also won Song of the Year in the same year. Those artists being Christopher Cross, Fun, Marvin Hamlish, Amy Winehouse, Alicia Keys, Billie Eilish, and Sam Smith. There have only been two artists who have won the Big Four Awards for Best New Artist, Record, Song, and Album of the Year in the same year at the same ceremony. They were Christopher Cross in 1980 and Billie Eilish in 2019. Adele pulled off the same wins, but she did each win in different years. The number of nominees has stayed at five artists for the most part. In 2018, the nominees went up to eight artists. The first woman to win the award was Carole King in 1971 for the song You've Got a Friend. Out of 61 winning songs, only 18 of them had female songwriters. A quick look at the winners list will tell you that the Academy loves adult contemporary ballads, standards, and music from movies. The theme from the movie Exodus was actually the first movie song to win. It was the second song to win Song of the Year overall in 1959. It's also the only instrumental song to ever win, at least so far. Other movies to have their songs win include Titanic, The Way We Were, Breakfast at Tiffany's, A Star is Born, the Barbara Streisand version, not the new one with Lady Gaga, An American Tale, Cocktail, Beaches, Rush, and Batman Forever. Since the new millennium, no song from a movie has taken the award. There have been two charity songs that have won. We Are the World for Ethiopian Famine Relief won in 1985, and That's What Friends Are For won in 1986. That song was originally written for the Michael Keaton movie Night Shift a couple of years earlier and sung by Rod Stewart. The song was not released as a single though so it became eligible for Song of the Year when it was sung and released by Gladys Knight, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, and Dionne Warwick for AIDS research. The first winner of the category was Domenico Madonio for his song Volare. That song was not only the first winner that had a solo performing artist writing his own winning song by himself, but it's also the only all-foreign-language song to win the award, as it is sung in Italian. No rock song, per se, or at least hard rock, has won the award. Much like the Record of the Year Grammy, if any rock bands did win, it was for a ballad such as The Beatles with Michelle in 1966 or Eric Clapton with Tears in Heaven in 1992 and Change the World in 1996. 
Beautiful Day from U2 and Smooth from Santana is about as rocking as you're going to get for this award. EDM has never won one, even during the year that Daft Punk won Album of the Year. Hip-hop finally won one in 2018 when Childish Gambino's This Is America won. By country, songwriters from the United States have won 45 times, while the United Kingdom has won 13 times. In this past decade, it was evenly split between the two countries, although Adele won two of them for England side. Yay, Britannia. As I said before, Domenico Madugno won the first award in 1958 with Volare. Jimmy Driftwood won the second award in 1959 for the Battle of New Orleans. The 1960s started out with Ernest Gold's instrumental theme from Exodus, then had Henry Mancini's Moon River, Sammy Davis Jr.'s What Kind of Fool Am I, Henry Mancini's Days of Wine and Roses, Louis Armstrong's Hello, Dolly, Tony Bennett's The Shadow of Your Smile, The Beatles' Michelle, The Fifth Dimension's Up, Up, and Away, Roger Miller's Little Green Apples, and ended with Joe South's Games People Play. Simon and Garfunkel won in 1970 for Bridge Over Troubled Water. The rest of the 70s shook out with winners being songs like Carol King's You've Got a Friend, Roberta Flack's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face followed right after that, with Roberta winning again for Killing Me Softly with his song, Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were, Judy Collins' Send in the Clowns, Barry Manilow's I Write the Songs, Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life, Barbara Streisand's Evergreen, that was the one from A Star is Born, Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are, and ended with the Doobie Brothers for What a Fool Believes, which was co-written by Kenny Loggins, he of Top Gun and Caddyshack fame. As the 1980s rolled around, the winners were Christopher Cross's Sailing, Kim Carnes's Betty Davis Eyes, Willie Nelson's Always on My Mind, The Police's Every Breath You Take, Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, USA for Africa's We Are the World, which was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, Dion Elton's Stevie and Gladys's song That's What Friends Are For, Linda Ronstant and James Ingram's Somewhere Out There, Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry Be Happy, and Bette Midler's Wind Beneath My Wings. Bette Midler followed up Wind Beneath My Wings with a win in 1990 for the song From a Distance. Other winners of that decade were Natalie and Nat King Cole's Unforgettable, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell's A Whole New World, Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia, Seals's Kiss from a Rose, Eric Clapton's Changed the World, Sean Colvin's Sonny Came Home, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On, and Santana and Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20's Smooth. By the way, in case you're wondering, a technicality managed to get Natalie and Nat King Cole's Unforgettable in as Song of the Year, even though Nat King Cole took that song to the top of the charts way back when, almost about, oh, 30-some-odd years ago, before this particular win 
for the exact same song. Again, technicality. The new millennium dawned with U2's Beautiful Day winning the 2000 award. The first decade of the new century had, as other winners, Alicia Keys' Fallen, Nora Jones's Don't Know Why, Luther Vandross's Dance With My Father, co-written by 80 superstar Richard Marks, John Mayer's Daughters, U2 again, this time for Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own, The Dixie Chicks with Not Ready To Make Nice, Amy Winehouse's Rehab, Coldplay's Viva La Vida, and ended the decade with Beyonce putting the ring on it, Single Ladies. This past decade had Lady Antebellum, now Lady A's, Need You Now, Adele's Rolling in the Deep, Fun and Janelle Monae's We Are Young, Lords's Royals, Sam Smith's Stay With Me, Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud, Adele's Hello, Bruno Mars' That's What I Like, Childish Gambino's This Is America, and finished off this past decade with a win for an American as Billie Eilish's Bad Guy won Best Song. So, who will win this upcoming year? That's a really good question. The nominees are for Song of the Year for the upcoming awards, Black Parade, Denicia Andrews, Beyonce, Stephen Bray, Sean Carter, Brittany Coney, Derek James Dixie, Akeel King, Kim Cadence, Krusiak, and Ricky Casso Tice songwriters. Beyonce, the performer. See, some nominees actually do have 10 award nominations. Go figure. Also, by the way, The Box. Samuel Glode and Roderick Moore, songwriters, better known as Roddy Rich. Cardigan, Aaron Dressner and Taylor Swift, songwriters, Taylor Swift performing. Circles, Louis Bell, Adam Feeney, Khan Gunsberg, Austin Post and Billy Walsh, songwriters, Post Malone, the performer. Don't Start Now, Caroline Aylin, Ian Kirkpatrick, Dua Lipa, and Emily Warren, songwriters, Dua Lipa, the performer. Everything I Wanted, Billie Eilish O'Connell and Phineas O'Connell, songwriters, obviously Billie Eilish, the performer. I Can't Breathe, Dernst Emil II, Her and Tiara Thomas, songwriters, Her the Performer. If the World Was Falling, Julia Michaels and J.P. Sachs, songwriters, J.P. Sachs featuring Julia Michaels, the performers. The tide was shifting a little towards more daring songs and from different genres other than adult contemporary. It looks like the Grammys took one song from each of the main genres this year, but for the most part, they kind of played it safe. The biggest controversy this time around, at least, is that everyone's odds-on favorite to win the award for Song of the Year, The Weeknd's Blinding Lights, wasn't even nominated. 
Same for anything from the Dixie Chicks' latest album. Otherwise, kind of looks like business as usual for this category. But at least it's not all adult contemporary this time. Next week's topic for that podcast will be the 2020 Year in Review. In fact, most of next week's podcast will be devoted to that. Tuesday's podcasts are always the EDM podcast, where we go over the EDM news and charts, induct someone into our EDM Hall of Fame, and some other things. It also drops at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Tuesday. This past week, we discussed yet another Grammy Award. This time, it was the History of the Best Dance Electronic Album Grammy. Here's some of that. This week, we're going to talk about the Best Dance Electronic Album Grammy. The award was handed out for the first time in 2005 as the Academy finally realized that there was more to EDM than just a bunch of dance pop artists. It was also a reaction to the fact that the best dance categories kept going to dance pop artists, virtually locking out relatively popular EDM artists of the time like Daft Punk, The Chemical Brothers, The Crystal Method, and such. As it was, two dance pop artists have been awarded this award. Madonna's Confessions on a Dance Floor beat out Gold Frapp, Paul Oakenfold, The Pet Shop Boys, and Zero Seven in 2007, while Lady Gaga's The Fame beat out The Crystal Method, LMFAO, David Guetta, and The Pet Shop Boys again in 2010. A few dance pop artists have been nominated a few times, but have not won yet. The aforementioned Pet Shop Boys have lost twice, and Robin has lost three times. As far as actual, legit EDM artists who have won the award the most, well, that goes, of course, to Skrillex, who's won it three times. Twice as a solo artist, and once as part of his partnership with Diplo as Jack Yu. The Chemical Brothers have been nominated five times and have won twice. Dead Mouse has the record for most nominations by a legit EDM artist without a win with three. When the award first started, it was known as the Best Electronic Dance Album Award. In 2012, it became the Best Dance Electronica Album Award, and in 2015, they went back to the original name but switched it around, so now it's called the Best Dance Electronic Album Award. According to the Academy, to be eligible for the award, the album has to be a dance album that has electronic instrumentation of at least 51%. In other words, Dance bands that play their own instruments, like Chic, let's say, for example, won't be eligible. Also, the album can't be a compilation album or a remix album, which rules out any of those state of trance albums that Armin Van Buren puts out, even if all of the artists have original music on it. The first award in 2005 actually went to Basement Jacks, who beat out The Crystal Method, Paul Oakenfold, The Prodigy, and Paul Van Dyke. 2006 saw the Chemical Brothers win their first of two category awards over Fatboy Slim, 
LCD sound system, Kraftwerk, and Daft Punk. 2007, we already talked about only about a minute ago. 2008 had the Chemical Brothers winning their second award, beating out LCD sound system, Tiesto, Justice, and Shiny Toy Guns. Normally, the category has five nominees. In 2009, though, they went to six, but for that year only. 2009 was also the year that the dance pop crowd dominated the nominations. Brazilian Girls, Cyndi Lauper, Kylie Minogue, Moby, and Robin were nominated, but Daft Punk ended up winning it for Alive 2007. We also spoke about 2010 a couple minutes ago. In 2011, the category went back to five nominees, where it's been ever since. That year, LaRoe beat out BT, The Chemical Brothers, Gold Frap, and Groove Armada. 2012 was EDM's coming out party at the Grammy Awards. It was billed as the year that the Academy supposedly gave respect to the genre, but really they wouldn't until 2014 when Daft Punk won Album of the Year for Random Access Memories. 2012 saw Dead Mouse perform with the Foo Fighters to end the award ceremony, and Dead Mouse being nominated in this particular category for his classic album 4 times 4 equals 12. Also nominated were Cut Copy, David Guetta, and Robin. Grammy voters, though, went with Skrillex's classic Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites, which was not a bad choice, actually. Skrillex also won in 2013 for Bangarang over Steve Aoki, The Chemical Brothers, Dead Mouse, and Cascade. In 2014, not only did Daft Punk win Album of the Year for Random Access Memories on the strength of the song Get Lucky, it also won in this category, beating out Disclosure, Calvin Harris, Cascade, and Pretty Lights. 2015 saw the awards start taking a turn from nominating the mega DJs and going to some of the lesser-known artists in the public eye, at least. It wasn't an immediate switch, though, as Royksop with Robin and Dead Mouse were nominated again, but Lil Dragon and Matt Zoe were nominated as well, and Aphex Twin, not known by the Instagram influencers in 2015 at that point, won the category. 2016 slid back to the better-known DJs as Disclosure, the Chemical Brothers, were nominated again, with Skrillex and Diplo's side project Jack U winning. However, little-known Caribou and Jamie X were also nominated that year. The last few years have been very eclectic for the award, with a mix of some industry vets along with some more not well-known names. 2017, for instance, had vets Jean-Michel Jarre and Louis Vega getting their first nominations. Other nominees that year were Tycho, Underworld, and the eventual winner, Flume. In 2018, Electronic Pioneers Craftwork finally got some respect and won the category over Bonobo, Muramasa, Odessa, and Sylvan Esso.
In 2019, unless you followed EDM, you really didn't know who John Hopkins, Sophie Tucker, Sophie, Toki Monsta, and Justice were, but all of them were nominated, with Justin Justice winning. In 2020, the Chemical Brothers beat out Apparat Flume, Rufus DeSoul, and Tycho. As far as the upcoming awards go for this coming ceremony, which will be held on January 31st, the nominees for the upcoming Dance Electronic Album Grammy are Arca with Kick One, Bauer with Planets Mad, Disclosure with Energy, Katranada with Bubba, and Madeon with Good Faith. While you're trying to figure out who's going to win this year's upcoming award, consider the fact that most EDM artists don't really put out albums anymore, which narrows down the choices so that the more obscure artists have a better chance of getting nominated, which honestly is great for dance music. My biggest fear, though, is that the Academy already realizes this and will kill the category just like they did to the best disco recording category, which we'll discuss next week. Every Wednesday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we drop the Music History Today in-depth podcast, which highlights a few events that happened that week in music history. This past week, we covered the week of January 1st through the 7th, and discuss Jimi Hendrix and the Weavers getting banned, talk about the significance of January 1st in music history, and why this week is important in the life of Sam Phillips. Here is some of that podcast. Jimi Hendrix was never really one to play by the rules, which is what made him the greatest guitarist to ever live. It was his experimenting with blues, feedback, and other things that made musicians want to copy him, and they all did. This particular event is a really good example of that. Back on January 4, 1969, the Jimi Hendrix Experience was scheduled to appear on singer Lulu's TV variety show, Happening for Lulu, on the BBC in England. Lulu was a big pop star at the time. The band was supposed to play Voodoo Child. Then, for their second song, they were supposed to play Hey Joe and move that song into Lulu's big hit to Sir With Love from the movie of the same name, while Lulu came up on stage to sing with them. Now, Two things influenced what happened next in our story. The first was that the band smoked way too much hash backstage before the performance, which is never a good idea when you're about to take the stage. The second was that the band Cream was rumored to have broken up before the performance. Jimmy went on stage and the band went through Voodoo Child without any problems at all. Then the band started playing their big hit, Hey Joe, 
which was actually not one of Jimmy's favorite songs. They played a little bit of it. Then he stopped and decided to play Cream's song, Sunshine of Your Love, in instrumental form for so long that Lulu never got on stage to sing to Sir With Love. The Jimi Hendrix Experience were banned from the BBC from that day forward. While Hendrix was the first to mess with the establishment on TV and radio, he was definitely not the last one. The Doors, with Jim Morrison, messed with Ed Sullivan on his TV show, while singing the censored line, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher, while performing the song, Light My Fire, with Morrison putting especially strong emphasis on the word higher when he got to it in the song. Elvis Costello pulled a Hendrix on Saturday Night Live, which got him decades-long banned from the show, although that has now been lifted. Nirvana being Nirvana, they had to give that whole thing their own little spin. During the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards, MTV wanted the band to play their song Lithium. The band wanted to play the song Rape Me, which had been banned at that point. The band went out on stage, played a few chords of Rape Me, then stopped and played Lithium like they were supposed to. Then Chris Novoselic threw his bass guitar in the air and missed it on the way down, causing it to hit him in the head. The things we do for our craft sometimes. Sometimes music is painful. Jimi Hendrix sticking it to the man by doing a TV performance his way and getting banned for it for all his troubles. January 4th, 1969. Next week, we'll cover January 8th through the 14th, which has the birthdays of two music icons. Every Thursday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we post the Music Halls of Fame podcast, where we honor an inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, make the case for putting an artist into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we usually highlight another Music Hall of Fame, Museum, or Walk of Fame. This past week, we talked about a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1991, made the case for inducting Albert Collins, the blues great, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and our Spotlight Museum was the Jazz Museum of Harlem in New York City. Here is a bit of that part of the podcast. Before we get to our Spotlight Museum, let us talk about another Hall of Fame for a couple of minutes here. This past week, 29 songs were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. They were Eau Claire De La Lune from Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, which was a single way back in 1860. That's right, 18 
60. Took them long enough to put that one in. Also being put into the Hall of Fame. John Mayle and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton at that point. The album, The Blues Breakers, 1966. Linda Ronstant's Canciones de Mi Padre. The album, 1987. Clean Up Woman by Betty Wright, the single, 1971. Copenhagen by Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra, the single, 1924-1925. Journey's karaoke classic, Don't Stop Believin'. The single, of course, 1981. Freight Train from Elizabeth Cotton, the single, 1958. Bruce Springsteen's debut album that absolutely no one bought. The album was a bust. Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, 1973. He didn't get popular until Born to Run only a couple years later. Patti Smith's Horses, the album, 1975. Hot Buttered Soul from Isaac Hayes, the album, 1969. In the Right Place, from Dr. John, the album, 1973. The Beastie Boys, the classic debut album, License to Ill. At least, debut on a major record label. They did have another album out earlier. That album, 1986. Mad Dogs and Englishmen, from Joe Cocker, the album, 1970. Mercy, 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 Live at the Club, the Cannonball Adderley Quintet, the album, 1966. Little classical music coming up. Ravel, Piano Concerto in G Major, Leonard Bernstein with the Philharmonia Orchestra of London, that album, 1948. Schoenberg, the Four Strings Quartet from the Klolich or Kolich String Quartet album, somewhere around 1940. They're not quite sure where. Could have been 39, could have been 41. They don't know. The album So, the classic album from Peter Gabriel, 1986. Billie Holiday with Solitude, the single, 1941. Pearl Jam with their debut album, 10. From 1991. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble with Texas Flood, the album 1983. The Cars with their album, simply titled The Cars, 1978. Also from 1978, Kenny Rogers' classic song, The Gambler. In the alternative hip hop category, a Tribe Called Quest, with their classic low-end theory, 1991. Irma Thomas with Time Is On My Side, the single from 1964. The album Trio from Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstant, and Emmy Lou Harris in 1987. USA for Africa's classic charity song, We Are the World, 1985. Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie's When the Levee Breaks, the single, 1929. The Wreck of the Old 97 from Vernon Dollart, 
the single 1924. And finishing it off with a little disco, The Village People with YMCA, the single 1978. Congratulations to all of those songs. They are all worthy. And the albums. I'm especially thrilled that Pearl Jam got in. That's pretty cool. And Peter Gabriel, not going to lie. Onward from the Grammy Hall of Fame to a museum. Our Spotlight Museum this week is focused on the quintessential American music form known as jazz. The National Jazz Museum in Harlem in New York City was first thought of in 1995 and was the brainchild of attorney Leonard Garment, who was general counsel to U.S. Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, and more importantly to this story, was a rather good jazz saxophonist. The museum opened in 1997 at 104 East 126th Street and stayed there until 2016 when it moved to its current location at 58 West 129th Street, just off of Malcolm X Boulevard. You take the two or three train to 125th Street and walk up a few short blocks, then turn right onto 129th Street for those of you who take the subway. The museum has many exhibits and memorabilia. However, it is best known, or at least its best known collection, is from audio engineer William Savory, who recorded radio broadcasts of many jazz greats using aluminum records in order to preserve his recordings longer. The museum has over a thousand of these recordings and is in the process of digitally cleaning them up. They've released a few of them actually on iTunes as the Savory Collection, if you would like to purchase them. The Jazz Museum in Harlem is a Smithsonian Affiliate Museum. Suggested museum admission is $10. Due to COVID restrictions, the museum is closed at the moment. However, they have an extensive online collection. So, you should go to www.jazzmuseuminharlem.org for more information, and as always, that will be in the show notes for you. One person who was recorded by William Savory was this next performer. This man was the ninth out of twelve kids. His father came from Poland and his mother came from Lithuania. They met in Baltimore and moved to Chicago, where our band leader was born. Their neighborhood was in the ghetto in the Maxwell Street neighborhood. Although the family didn't have any money, the father somehow managed to pay for his kids' music lessons as the kid became interested in music. While he was in Chicago, he learned from artists such as Johnny Dodds and Jimmy Noon. By the time he was 14, he was already playing professionally. His father, unfortunately, didn't live to see his overall success. His father passed away tragically in an accident when the kid was 17 years old. After that, the kid moved to New York City and became a successful session musician. After a number of years, he got a band of his own together and started working the supper clubs and got a radio show on NBC called Let's Dance. 
There, the band started playing a new style of music called swing. The radio show was popular enough, that, but it became a victim of a strike and was canceled right in the middle of the Great Depression. Now, here's where history takes one of those weird turns. The radio show lineup was such that the kids' band was on late in the evening, sometimes after midnight on the East Coast. On the East Coast, that meant that most people hadn't heard his new style of music or of the band themselves. However, on the West Coast in California, the radio show was live, not taped, which meant that people were listening not around midnight, like on the East Coast, but 9 o'clock in the evening on the West Coast to the show. And it was there that the band and the swing style of music took hold. The band had heard that kids on the West Coast had invented dances to do with their music. Just in case you thought that was a TikTok thing. No, that phenomenon's been around for literally a century now. So the band scrapped some money together and went on tour over on the West Coast. And little by little... The music and the dancing went from the West Coast to the East Coast and began to catch on. The rest is history. The music and dancing became a cultural phenomenon known as swing music and its Pied Piper, clarinetist, and band leader, Benny Goodman, became the catalyst. But in 1938, he took it to a whole other level. In a lot of big cities in the world, there are certain concert venues that are considered highbrow, for lack of a better phrase. Maybe stuck up is actually a better way of putting it. These are places where your normal garage band wouldn't be caught dead in. Hell, you almost feel like you have to get dressed up in a Brooks Brothers suit just to walk by the place. These places usually have ballet companies and classical music played in them. New York City actually has a few. Lincoln Center with the Metropolitan Opera House and Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall once was the main concert place for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. It's a pretty prestigious place for a musician to play, even to this day. The old joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. That still rings true. It's a nice little feather in the cap and a bucket list item for musicians everywhere. It has since opened its doors to other types of music, and this next event helped with that. See, back in the early part of the 20th century, jazz was not taken seriously in mainstream America looked at as black people's music, along with rock and roll in the mid-20th century, it developed a following but was not looked at in the same vein as, say, classical music or standards. It took swing music and Benny Goodman to help begin to change people's opinions about it. In 1938, Benny Goodman and swing music were at the height of their power. Goodman was selling out concert halls all over America. 
He was a film and radio star. One day, his publicist came to him with an idea. How about the band play Carnegie Hall? At first, he pretty much just laughed at the idea, and it's kind of like Justin Bieber playing at the Metropolitan Opera House. Then, kind of talked himself into doing it. He had not only his band, but also members of the Count Basie and Duke Ellington orchestras there. Top tickets went for $2.75, which was a hell of a lot of money back in 1938, considering that the Great Depression was still around, and of course the steady drumbeats of World War II coming ever so much closer to taking American lives. The concert was a smash. Although no one thought it was recorded, it actually was. You can get the concert on CD, and now actually on download. What's now ironic is that jazz, once considered the bastard stepchild of, quote, real music, end quote, is now itself considered highbrow in many circles, including my old college of the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where it was drilled into me on the regular that classical and jazz are the real art forms and no other music is. But Benny Goodman broke down the barrier when he held a night of jazz music at Carnegie Hall on January 16th, 1938. It is the recording of this concert that made it into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry, and there's more recordings of Benny's performances in the Savory Collection at the Jazz Museum of Harlem in New York City. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame podcast number 125. For more music podcasts, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, TuneIn, Podbean, HubHopper, OnlyFans, and Patreon, all under Music History Today. Then, every day, we do a short podcast called Music History Today, which was actually the first podcast that I did where we go over the music events that happened that day in music history, along with some of the birthdays of musical artists for that particular day. This past week's birthdays included Annie Lennox, Dido, Noel Redding, Jimmy Buffett, and Cab Calloway on Christmas Day, Phil Spector, Lars Ulrich of Metallica, and Chris Daughtry on December 26th, Marlena Dietrich and Haley Williams on December 27th, John Legend and Edgar Winter on December 28th, Marion Faithful and on December 29th, Ellie Goulding, Bo Diddley, and V of BTS on December 30th, and Donna Summer and John Denver on New Year's Eve. I have also started a Patreon page where I have a couple of tiers at the moment. Tier 1 gives you all of the free podcasts along with a minimum of three extra podcasts per month. 
those podcasts on that tier will be the top albums podcast, the top singles podcast, and the top dance songs podcast. That tier is going to only cost a few dollars per month. There may also be another podcast added on that tier. It depends on the month, but those three podcasts are guaranteed each month. Here is a little taste of one of the podcasts that you will get in that tier this upcoming month. Now to number 100 on the 2020 Rolling Stone list. In the late 1950s, rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins needed a backup touring band. He recruited bass guitarist Rick Danko, keyboardist Garth Hudson and Richard Manuel, guitarist Robbie Robertson, and drummer Levon Helm from other Toronto, Canada bands and named his band The Hawks. The Hawks got good playing the Toronto circuit, so good, in fact, that they had actually outgrown Hawkins. In late 1963, they left Hawkins over the usual creative differences excuse, but they didn't break up. Instead, they went out on their own and used various names like Levon and the Hawks. They released a few singles, had even offered to be blues great Sonny Boy Williamson's backup band. However, Williamson ended up dying not too long after that offer was made, so that kind of put an end to that idea real quick. In 1965, blues singer John Hammond Jr. recommended the Hawks to a guy who was looking for a backup band for his tour, Bob Dylan. Dylan, after also hearing about the Hawks from his manager's secretary, Mary Martin, went up to Toronto to hear them play. Dylan hired the group right after that. They also stopped being called the Hawks and started going by the name everybody would soon know them by, the band. For Tier 2, you will get all of the free podcasts along with all of the paid podcasts on Tier 1 along with a minimum of at least three additional podcasts per month. That tier is $10 per month. The additional podcasts on that tier are the Top Dance Songs by Decade podcast, the Award Show History podcast, and the Music and Concert Venues podcast. There may also be another podcast added for that tier as well, and much like Tier 1, it depends on the month, but those three podcasts are guaranteed each month for Tier 2 only. And here's a little bit from one of the podcasts that you'll get in Tier 2 this month. This next song is not only the 100th best dance song of the 1990s, but it's also the song that's credited with starting off the Latin pop trend that continues to this day, and it probably wouldn't have been as big if it wasn't for an award show performance. Ricky Martin was born in Puerto Rico. He was a good Catholic boy and an altar boy, but what he really wanted to do as a child was to perform. At the age of nine, he started doing commercials and was pretty successful at it. In 1983, Ricky auditioned for the Latin kid boy band Menudo, who were extremely popular in Latin America. Think of them as the BTS or NSYNC of Latin America. Ricky was actually rejected by the group twice because they thought he was too short. 
By the third audition, they finally let him join. At first, things went well. The group was pretty popular and had begun to make it big in America. By the end of the decade, though, the group's fortunes had changed and they weren't that popular anymore. Their sound went from kiddie pop to edgier songs. And Ricky, having spent a good chunk of his teenage years in Menudo, left the group in 1987 when he was 17. He was going to go to New York University when he turned 18, but decided to get into acting and acted in a Mexican soap opera and a play. Ricky began his solo music career in earnest after signing with Sony Discos, who was Sony's Latin label. Unfortunately for him, he signed a record deal that only gave him literally one penny in royalties for every album that was sold. He learned his lesson after that. Always read your contracts. Also, don't trust your record label. That's a really good one to remember. That's kind of par for the course these days. Remember, you get a minimum of 47 podcasts on Tier 1 with everything and 50 podcasts minimum on Tier 2. Plus, I may add another tier or maybe even two down the road. We shall see. And that is it for the Music History Today Highlights Podcast number one. For more music podcasts, check us out on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc., and also on OnlyFans and Patreon, all under Music History Today. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, catering, basically everything is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc. Look for them all under Music History Today when you search for us there. If you would like to support this podcast... Our paid OnlyFans can be found at OnlyFans.com backslash Music History Today. And our Patreon can be found at Patreon.com backslash Music History Today. We are also on Twitter at Music History Day. And you can find us on YouTube and Spotify. Just search for us under Music History Today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.